We're now in Romans 11 for this and two more Sundays. And we're looking at this section of Romans chapters 9 through 11 with an eye toward why mercy matters. And in this passage before us, again, we're straddling chapters as we did a couple of weeks ago. We've got the last four verses of chapter 10, first 10 verses of chapter 11. We see that mercy matters because mercy is what preserves a remnant, key word, it's there in verse 5, a remnant among a people group God is not yet finished with. I don't know if you spend a lot of time in Romans 9 through 11. I, I tend to think that if there are sticky pages in Romans, the pages that are hardly turned, it's, it's this section. In fact, a lot of people sort of skip over it. This passage that we are looking at, the dots he just read for us, is kind of an Old Testament who's who. I mean, you get Moses, you get Elijah, you get a lot of Isaiah quotations, and we've been in Isaiah throughout this service. Then you get David there in verse 10. But there's a lot of emphasis on Israel here in Romans 9 through 11. By Israel is meant ethnic Jews all over the world, not just the, the nation proper. There is a remnant now, Paul says. He said so in his day, and we know that extends on up into our day. But the question comes, will God enlarge it? Is Israel just a past tense uh, occupation with, with God, or is there something for them ethnically with God in the future? The thing about remnants, particularly in this context, is that a remnant is a signal. Uh, a remnant is seedy in the best use of the term, seedy in that uh, God is seeding through that remnant uh, an ongoing testimony to who he is in Christ and how he's revealed himself to be in Jesus. And so a, a remnant signals that God is always doing more than we know and that his mercy is more durable than unbelief. This is why mercy matters. With God, a, a remnant is not just what's left over after everyone else has left. Uh, with God, a, a remnant is the promise of something more to come. And that's why it's important that we dial in on this word remnant here. Again, it's in verse 5 in chapter 11 in reference to Jewish believers. Verse 5, chapter 11, so too at the present time. There is a remnant chosen by grace. And then Paul makes this familiar contrast with verse 6. Uh, this is one of these all-time lines in, in Romans. If it's, if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Not that you could ever have righteousness from God based on your works, but he's made the case already in chapters 9, 10, and 11 to hear that, that that's the mistake Israel made is they, is they began to believe in their self-righteousness and they turned the law into something they had to do to keep God's favor and approval rather than uh, their faith being exercised as they obeyed the law. We've, we've covered that as we've gone through. But here in verse 5, this reference to a remnant chosen by grace, he says, and preserved by mercy. It's the very same for us. We Gentiles, most of us here in the room are of Gentile origin. But even in the worst seasons of Israel's unbelief and faithlessness, and Elijah's days were a worst season. And we're going to get into Elijah here a bit. You see he's mentioned in verses uh, 2 through 4 in chapter 11. That was a worst season. And yet not everyone had in the words of verse 8, a spirit of stupor. Not everyone had eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear down to this very day. Not everyone was obstinate, disobedient, and contrary, as he says in the last verse there in chapter 10. Not everyone was. Most were, then and now, but not 
everyone. There was and there is a remnant chosen by grace. What does the existence of a remnant tell us? I want to give you two things, two takeaways. We'll build the sermon around these two points, and then we'll move into communion after the choir uh, sings for us. Two things a remnant communicates to us. First is that God is always doing more than we know. This is one of the best things I can tell you. A remnant communicates to us a a bigger spiritual truth that, that God is always doing more than we know. It's not just a spiritual truth. It's a Christian truth. And then secondly, we'll talk about God's mercy being more durable than unbelief. That's the two things that we're going to talk about in this message. So first, this idea that God is always doing more than we know. Look at the presence of a believing remnant within a group of people characterized by the most hardened unbelief in Jesus on earth. Now, someone could say, well, but that's just how percentages go. Paul's not saying anything earth-shaking here. There were bound to be some ethnic Jews who would believe in Jesus. Paul's always pointing to himself as the most unlikely candidate. You can go back in Romans and read how he talks about himself. You can go over to Philippians and, and read there how he talks about himself as the most unlikely candidate. This guy persecuted the church. He was in no way looking to convert to Jesus. But the majority of ethnic Jewish people throughout the world do not believe in Jesus today. That is to say, they do not trust in Jesus for a right standing before God. They do not seek Jesus' righteousness and his only. It's quite a thing to say that the majority is wrong and the remnant is right. That's quite a thing to say. But that's precisely what's being said here. It's why Paul agonized over his people. You can go back to chapter 9 and see the emotion again. I wish I could be cut off from Christ if it brought more people from my people group in. Whenever a majority is mistaken about something, it's a tragedy. You can just look not just in in Israel's history. You can look in American history. You can look uh, in French history. You can look in British history. You can look in Indian history. Whenever a people in the majority has been wrong about something, that's a tragedy. Particularly in the case of Israel, because they had so much going with God. I mean, that's the, that's the underlining part of, of this section of Romans. Is look at all that they had. I mean, Jesus himself wept over Jerusalem as he entered it for the, for the last time in his, in his earthly life in the first century because their rejection of him went so deep, he knew they wanted to kill him. Most would not believe he was the one God promised, the one God sent them. All the cultural incentives have always been on the side of those who reject Jesus. All the cultural incentives have been. They're not on the side of of those who subject to his rule. But there were and there is a smaller number called here in verse 5, chapter 11, verse 5, a remnant chosen by grace, and Paul was himself one, and he never got over that. Now, most of us have a soft spot for the underdog. We like the dark horse. Those who defy odds make great stories. These are your ESPN 30 for 30s, you know. This is SEC storied, right? You watch SEC storied? I know you do. I saw a statistic this week that on average we watch 27 hours of television a week 
We spend 24 hours in front of a computer screen. This is not work. We spend uh, 15 hours on our phone a week, and we spend 12 hours with the radio. That's the average commute week. Isn't that that staggering? And when you put it like that, you just feel like, oh, gosh, you know, what an awful person I've turned out to be. Well, we're all there. Those who defy the odds and make great stories. And so this little remnant that Paul gives us here in chapter 11, you're pulling for them. You pull for remnants. Still, the fact remains, and facts are stubborn things, it's hard to go against the majority. I mean, when you go against the majority, you second-guess yourself often. And Paul says, let me give you a historic figure from our past uh, who's an exhibit A of how difficult it is to go against the majority. And he, and he calls on Elijah to sort of present himself here in the text as, a, as an ancient witness. The era of Jewish unbelief, Paul says, it's not new. Let's look back at the time, the life and times of Elijah. So look at it again, chapter 11, verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Foreknowledge conveys an idea of prior relationship. It's not just a, a knowledge ahead of time. God does know the actual or the potential as well as the actual. But foreknowledge in, in context of, of New Testament instruction is, is about a prior relationship. And he just gives this blanket statement. God's not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And then he's going to spell this out in the rest of the chapter. Verse 2, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel. These are Elijah's words now. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I alone am left, and they seek my life. The queen Jezebel was seeking his life. She put a, 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 a death warrant out on him. But verse 4, what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men have not bowed the knee to Baal. God was doing more than Elijah knew. Now, if you don't know Elijah, again, you've got kind of a who's who of, of Old Testament figures here. Uh, all the significant names just about are in this passage. Moses, Abraham. You're quoting Isaiah. You're, you're, you're talking about Elijah. You've got David down here uh, at the end. If you don't know Elijah, if you're not familiar with, with, with Scripture, that's, that's okay. He is one of what you ought to know is that as the Old Testament goes, that big block of of books in the, in the front part of the Bible. Elijah's a very significant figure. He's one of the most important Old Testament prophets there was, and he actually factors, though they lived hundreds of years, of, hundreds of years apart, Elijah factors large into the ministry and life of, of Jesus himself. But if you go back to 1 Kings, that's the Old Testament book that you would read to look at the life of Elijah, he spoke truth to power during a, a very low point in the nation's history's uh, uh, reign of Ahab and his wife Jezebel, this king and queen who were into Baal worship. Now, what you need to know about Baal worship, Baal's the, the last word there in verse 4. Baal was, a, was an idol, a false god, and the, the Baal cult was more or less a sex cult. Uh, Baal was a fertility god. And so people really got into this. People have always liked the lie that truer freedom is found in casting off our restraints, you know, parting with whatever convention says uh, that restricts or limits self-expression. And that Baal worship appealed to Old Testament Israel despite all of this that they had with and from God. It just mirrors back to us similar tendencies in ourselves. 
fact, this is a good place for us to consider the idea or the, the experience of deconversion because that's what Baal worship was for Israel. It was deconversion. Uh, are you familiar with this term deconversion? It's, it's become kind of a thing to deconvert from Christianity and, and go public with that. There's always an audience, it seems, for, for eating up what really does become a, a very seductive story in the way that deconverts uh, present their stories. In the case of Israel of old, as I said, Baal worship became their expression of deconversion. But today, putting it in our context, just to consider this for a moment, deconversion, whether this is public figures that are known or, 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 or people uh, that aren't, deconversions today involve people going public with their desire to no longer be called Christian. Again, I, I, this is kind of a thing. Uh, you, you find it on social media and in various places. Deconverts will say, well, I'm just finally being honest with uh, myself and everyone else. Um, and, and, and there's a cultural reward for that because um, unbelief is the new honesty and and cultural goodwill accumulates on the side of those who, who begin to trust their doubts. Uh, or if it's not unbelief outright, it, it's belief repackaged. What many end up deconverting from actually is an evangelical expression of faith and faithfulness in order to pursue that which in belief or practice really falls off the page of Scripture. So you get these abundant uh, reinterpretations and redefinitions to fit a more modern context. And deconverts... They're good at, at, at pointing out our hypocrisies. Uh, they, they really are. Sometimes God uses them for that. I, I think in this context, the movie was called Simon Birch. You see Simon Birch back in the 90s? Uh, the book is John Irving's A Prayer for Owen Meany. And uh, in reading the book I, I, uh, last year, I, I thought of a, a place in his um, novel, A Prayer for Owen Meany, where, where little Owen is actually defending his faith in God in a religion class at a boy's prep school, not, not, a, not a, a, a nice audience, and, uh, and guys are talking about why they don't believe anymore, and, and little Owen's got this little squeaky voice, and he stands up and he goes, just because some preacher's a jerk doesn't mean God doesn't exist. Deconverts are helpful sometimes in, in showing us where we've been a jerk and where our, our creed and our conduct uh, don't align. They know us well, having been us, and we usually say they love us still and they're thankful for the good times they had among us, but there were just too many bad times. Or they'll say the church in America just lives and moves and has its being in, in ways they find too embarrassing to be associated with anymore. And we ought to listen to them. Some of them will show up in our own families. And we ought to try, thanks for calling Capital One, and we ought to try to understand their frustrations. Don't be embarrassed, whoever that was. I'm just, I'm just having fun with you. Some of them will show up in our own families. Some of them are so far in debt to Capital One that that's why they deconvert because God hasn't taken them out. You can transition into anything. And we ought to try to understand them. We ought to try to understand their frustrations. And... Uh, not be dismissive of their concerns. And the reason we should do that is because of this first point we're talking about. is due to the realization that God is always doing more than we know. And sometimes, especially among those who try to put themselves out of God's reach, they never really are. He can break in on self-imposed darkness anytime. God was doing that in Elijah's day. That's why going back and looking at Elijah's day is, 
it, it matters to our own because we see, well, you know, God's kind of doing the same thing in our day. God's never stopped doing the same thing, whatever era. God was preserving a people for himself in pretty dark times. And Elijah looked about around himself and he goes, Lord, I know it's dark. Do you know how dark it is? He knew there were more prophets of Baal in the land than prophets of God. What he didn't know was the more that God was doing. God is never outnumbered. When Elijah said these words that Paul brings to mind for us here in verses 2 through 4, you know what, he's, what he'd just come from? If you've read 1 Kings chapters 18 and 19, you know he'd just come from doing battle this sort of uh, WWE smackdown between, you know, God and Baal. And there was 450 prophets of Baal and there was one prophet of God. One against 450. How do you like those odds? And Baal never answered. And God answered with a fireball from heaven and it consumed this watery, uh, this thing that had been pitchers of water had been poured all over the sacrifice and it just comes down boom and all the people fall down and go the Lord is God the Lord is God oh we'd love to see stuff like that 450 servants of Baal plus the text says there were 400 prophets of Asherah another competing God 850 chieftains of, of culture. I mean, they were culture shapers. They had the support of the king and queen and all the powerful people. They had all the resources. It was Baal's world. It was Asherah's world. All Elijah had was God, or so he thought. And by the way, sometimes we like to say, this is kind of our, our, when our piety sort of bows up, well, you and God's a majority, you know. I grew up in Alabama, so I heard stuff like this all the time. They don't say it in Tennessee, but back in Alabama, we said stuff like that. You and God's a majority, you know. But this passage says God likes having a lot of people around him. He says, hey, I got 7,000 in addition to you, Elijah. I'm not alone. I'm not outnumbered. Now, the remnant, it was a remnant compared to the millions that were in the land, a small number, 7,000. Remnants aren't big, but the thing about remnants is, again, they are seedy in the best sense of the term because a remnant says God has not killed his tractor. He's still going out in the field. He's still sowing, and he's still going to reap a harvest. He's up to more than we know. Remnants are everywhere. God has his people in places you don't think his people are. Be very careful what you call godless. Be very careful where you conclude God is not or where you're convinced God has nothing to do with or whom. You do not know that for sure. You might be making Elijah's mistake. If I were to rank truths that have become more, more and more valuable to me the older I get, if I compiled a, a David Letterman top ten, remember when you used to do that? This would be in the top 10 of best things I know that God is always doing more than I know. And the reason it's valuable to me actually is very personal. I mean, it's, it's because Elijah, when I look at Elijah, Elijah was a quitter. I'm a quitter. I have that in my heart. Things get too bad. Things start to go a, a certain way. And it's like, well, I'm just done with that. I don't want to be part of that anymore. I'm very good at going off and saying, everybody is, and I'm the only one. I'm great at that, in fact. But even if I'm in a season of success and, and I can itemize all the ways that God is blessing, look at all this stuff God's doing, 
He's still doing more than I know. And even if I'm in a season of suffering and loss and it's like the balance sheet is empty, Lord, there's nothing here. Nothing seems to be happening going my way. Things seem to be falling apart in key areas. Even then, when I can't see his blessing, he's still doing more than I know. Well, how do I know this? Is this because I want to believe that? Or is it I believe that because I base it on what he's already done, like keeping in some of Israel's darkest days, which is the Elijah story is put in chapter 11 of Romans to say, in the darkest time imaginable in that particular locality, God kept for himself a remnant of people who continued to trust and love him. They weren't just acknowledging him, they were paying for it. Never say it is so dark that his light can no longer get through. It just isn't true. Now, the second consideration I mentioned earlier we take in this passage is that God's mercy is more durable than unbelief. You think, well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of obvious, but let's think about this. God's mercy is more durable than unbelief. We are very thankful this is so. Look again at these Old Testament quotations. Uh, Just take verse 21, chapter 10, verse 21, last verse in chapter 10. But of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient contrary people. All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. What's that holding out the hands? It's pleading. It's the sense of please, please, would you please come back to me? All the prophets are sent with this message, return. Come back to this God who loves you and who wants you to trust him. Look down at uh, verse um, 8, another Old Testament quotation there. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. That's judgment language. And David says, verse 9, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. It's the idea that ideas have consequences. These are postures of rebellion that get judged by God. The posture is rebellion, but the gestures are gestures of unbelief. That's why the rebellion follows. That's why the postures of rebellion are taken and when God took the postures and the gestures of the, the nation, the rebellion and the unbelief, and he, and he merged it into a picture, it's a pretty graphic picture that he uses all through the Old Testament of an unfaithful bride. This is the go-to imagery for God all through the prophets. God told Israel, you're like a wayward wife always looking for the next hookup at a cheap hotel. Donald Miller in one of his books, tries to get us into the emotion of this by telling of a friend of his in Baltimore who had the torturous misfortune of one day overhearing his wife on the phone with another man. She didn't know that he was in the house behind her in earshot as she confessed to this other man her enjoyment of his touch had turned into love for him and plans to be with him. Miller says his friend was disconsolate. He, he, was in a, he was instantly in a daze. He said he got in his car and he, he just drove around Baltimore, going nowhere in particular, just staring for hours. And he would go into coffee shops and he would, just, he would just sit there with his head in his hands. He didn't know what to do. 
He went to a bus station finally, and he, he bought a ticket to Pittsburgh. He didn't know why he was going to Pittsburgh. He just thought he would go, and, and then he missed the bus because he bought a pack of cigarettes that he thought he, he ought to smoke these just to, just to have that feeling, and spent the next hour vomiting yellow muck into a filthy toilet in the bus station. See, we read of Israel breaking God's law and being disobedient and contrary all day long. I've held up my hands to contrary, disobedient people. We read that in a culture that actually celebrates the contrarian. <laughs> I mean, we read that in a, in a culture uh, where one who questions authority becomes the bestseller. We read of Israel being Israel as we know them to be in the Old Testament, just like us in many ways. But we have this really forensic idea of their obedience, their disobedience, I should say. But it was really ugly. And God felt it, the brunt of it. As Donald Miller went on to write in the same book, this story about his friend was told in his words, it's a very different thing to break a rule than it is to cheat on a lover. And God said over and over through prophets like Elijah, that what Israel did to him was more like that, cheating on him, and it nauseated God. Human sin is not a technical act of betrayal against a code. It's a relational act against a lover. <clears throat> it's not impersonal. It's a terribly painful thing for the one who has to endure it to endure it, even God. When the text says, verse 5, chapter 11, verse 5, so too at the present time there's a remnant chosen by grace. Let's keep in mind that grace sweat blood in a garden before that grace carried a cross to the place of crucifixion. Before that grace, then on that cross, cried out in lament, my God, why have you forsaken me? He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. To be treated, that is, as if he was guilty of everything disordered, everything obstinate, everything contrary, everything vomitous in human experience. Why does mercy matter? Because it proves itself over time more durable than unbelief. And that is saying something because God knows we want our sin. But look at the lengths to which he is willing to go to draw us out from it. Unbelief is not the last word when mercy takes the floor. And mercy is more focused on what's good than unbelief ever can be or will be. In all of our gesturings of unbelief and our posturing and rebellion, we think we know better what we want. We think we know better what we need, but we are deceived. I read a book recently by a woman who works for Merriam-Webster. It's the dictionary people. She's a lexicographer for them, meaning what she does every day is, is researches words and, and discovers how they're used in English generally and particularly. She gives dictionary definitions, and that's different. A lexical definition is different from what she called a real definition. And she gave as an example of the difference the word love. Her job working for the dictionary is not to try to tell us what love is, she says, that's real defining. That's the work of philosophers and theologians, she said. Real defining, lexical defining is her work. 
And she said that's concerned with the word love, how we use it, and thus the dictionary will call affection the same sentence of love for pizza and love for mom. This is affection. It's a description. How the word is being used is the lexicographer's concern. But she says it often happens with words like love that readers will go online, the Merriam-Webster online dictionary, and they'll make comments and they'll argue the dictionary hasn't adequately defined this word. You haven't told us what love is. Somebody wrote in one of the comment sections, love is so much more than you have here. Well, of course it is. The dictionary is telling us how the word love gets used in English, what it means in usage, not what it is in its essence. It's actually beyond the concern of the dictionary to try to say that. When we say mercy is more durable than unbelief, what we're ultimately what we're talking about is what love is and what love does. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. 1 Corinthians 13. When we say mercy is more durable than a belief... We are also saying within that that God has never stopped loving the ethnic people he promised Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. In fact, it goes even deeper as we'll see next time in the text. Look down at chapter 11, verse 11. This will be next week's text. So I ask, verse 11, chapter 11, did they stumble in order they might fall? By no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Actually says the same thing by quotation up in verse 19 of chapter 10 in our text. I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. This is chapter 10, verse 19. With a foolish nation, it's no compliment to us. I will make you angry. Who talks like this? A lover talks like this. Now, our sin is all tangled up in, in our expressions of jealousy, and so we don't have a clean view of what jealousy is. But God's holiness is tied up in his expression of jealousy. Such that if we, if we put this in terms of like a chemical compound, something you were mixing in a lab, and you mix equal parts of holiness and jealousy and love, and then poof, you know, you get this reaction. And the reaction looks like judgment, but it has the odor of mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Scripture says that. God's element is mercy. Our element is rebellion and unbelief. He overcomes that by taking the judgment that we should get ourselves for us on our behalf. He overcomes rebellion and unbelief in us and for us and will at some point generously add to his Jewish remnant more Jewish people for Jesus. This chapter is ethnic specific that way. It's saying that some way, somehow, sometime it'll happen. We can't be dismissive of them. And that it will happen for them, Paul says, is confidence. It plays to our confidence that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion on the day of Christ Jesus because we're not more obedient. We're not less obstinate. 
And we, we've even had the, the mercies of the cross applied to us. That is, what Israel had in the old covenant context kept looking forward to that. And then here we are, the foolish nation on the other side of the cross, getting to bask in the glory of who God is and what He's done for us in Jesus. But we're not better than them. God's mercy is just more durable than our unbelief. And He's always doing more than we know. Let me pray, and then we're going to listen to the choir minister to us in song, and then we'll have communion. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this text and that we can see your mercy. We need to see your mercy. Help us to see it. It's so easy to see so many other things that compete and block and obscure it from our view. Lord, mercy is never an eclipse. We thank you that that sun shines. We thank you that you are a shield for us, as the Scriptures say. And that you're long-suffering. You were for the people that you gave Abraham, who would be his ethnic descendants as well as the people. We, these people here today, who get in on that blessing. Thank you for all you're doing and accomplishing that we cannot see. And Lord, it is enough sometimes just to come to you and say thanks for what you're doing that we can't see and can't know. Help us to incorporate that into our praying and so that... It expands our borders, and we don't live in the small, tight, confined place of your doing and only just there and just that. Lord, keep us broader and wider, which is not an invitation to heresy, but an invitation to relishing how good you are and how merciful you are. We are thankful. In Christ's name, amen.